Hello and welcome to this week's BossCast. I'm Andrew Teacher and it's an absolute privilege to be joined by the most senior of all bosses I think we've ever had on this podcast, Peter Freeman, who is chairman of Homes England. Also now, Peter, as well as being one of the founders of Argent, you're also, as of the summer, chair of the Cambridge Development Group. But it's an absolute pleasure to have you on PropCast. Thank you very much for coming in. Now, tell us, among the many plates that you spin day to day, what's keeping you the most busy in a minute? And what are the things that you still really need to get done? Because you're not giving up, you're not retiring anytime soon, and you seem busier than you've ever been. That's probably true. Thank you for that lovely introduction, not at all deserved. I'm busy across a range of things. And in my main sort of day job, so to speak, as chair of Homes England, the range of Homes England means that we worry about affordable housing programmes where we give about a billion and a half a year in grants to housing associations. We worry about regeneration, the brownfield infrastructure. Land Fund has recently been launched and we're working very closely in many places, particularly in 20 towns like Sheffield and Wolverhampton. We make loans to small SME builders. We do all manner of things. We're involved in cladding remediation. But I guess the new thing of the summer for me is I'm now being appointed chairman of the Cambridge Delivery Group. And we're meant to advise and we will advise government on really the opportunities to help drive the growth of Cambridge forward in in the best way possible to capture for Britain the growth in life sciences, robotics, artificial intelligence. But there's some real sort of early showstoppers to be addressed in Cambridge. Um, Water shortage is absolutely paramount. So we need to look at that and discover how we can solve it. Energy as well. Energy is also a problem. Traffic congestion for a relatively small town is a problem. So we'd be looking at all of those things to make recommendations, to look at how you can clear the way for some schemes that are already allocated but held up from delivery because of these problems. But we'll also be looking at how it can network out further into the region as a whole and work as an absolute hub for the country. Mm. That makes a lot of sense. And obviously, as regular listeners to this podcast know, with my team, we've been big, big supporters and promoters of the Oxford-Cambridge Arc over the last seven or eight years. And a couple of major reports that we published, including the Radical Regeneration Manifesto, that have set out numerous policy suggestions. And we'll come on and I'll throw some of these at you, Peter, and see what you back back at me. But I think... And I know lots of people agree with me that there is a huge opportunity, both socially and economically, to promote not just Cambridge, but the wider arc. And I think what the sector needs to do, the real estate sector, the life science and innovation sectors together need to do, is explain that this isn't just about helping rich academic towns become smarter and richer, but there's a broader halo effect to be created that brings into play many, many other parts of the country. And I think that's what the opportunity is here. Otherwise, the conversation just gets reduced to building houses and building roads, which are just going to run into the same old opposition that always gets put up. But I think it's a great appointment for that group, and I'm sure you'll have a lot of fun in the role. So I'd like to see what we can do and help the local authority, the city, South Cambridge, and the county, and the mayoral authority of Peterman Cambridge. If we can help join up all of government so that if DEFRA has a part to play in water or the DFT has a part to play, what we can do in Cambridge hopefully 
can be an exemplar for what needs to be done around the country. Because too often, you're right, property is siloed. It's either housing or offices. It's not about the place. It's not about the plaques. It's not about the schools. It's not about the doctor's surgeries. Anecdotally, in Nigel Hugel, who I'm sure you know of Urban and Civic, says he always allows room for doctor's surgery in all of his new urban extensions but he never can sort of grapple the NHS to actually deliver the doctor's surgery. So I think part of what I'd like to achieve from the Cambridge Task Force is showing how, by bringing all the different bits of government together, you're much more effective, you will get much more local support for it because there's benefit. You know, underlying why people like King's Cross is the first thing we built was the fountains in the main square. There's no rent on the fountains. They cost a lot of money to operate, but the fountains drive that sense of King's Cross being an open place that people can enjoy coming. They don't have to pay. They don't have to have a reason to come to visit a building. They can just enjoy the fountains. And you know, if Cambridge is to grow, it deserves more green spaces. It deserves more schools, more doctor's surgeries. But I think the green spaces, the public open space, the ways people congregate is absolutely critical. Mm. Well, look, I mean, the King's Cross name check brings us on to Argent, which I'm not sure this is a good thing or a bad thing. I suppose it's neither, but Argent's pretty much the same age as me. Uh, and you, you gave <laughs> Mature. Birth, yeah, yeah, maturing. <laughs> but young. <laughs> still, still, yes, still a man-child, as people would probably say about me. But you gave birth to Argent with your brother in 1981. Mm-hmm. Talk us through that story for people that aren't familiar with it, because it's an amazing story, and there's much that many people can learn from it, both in a sense of entrepreneurialism in its purest sense, but also in terms of real estate and placemaking. What was the backstory to that and how did that come to pass? So the backstory is we both read history at university, which wasn't a career. We'd both qualified as lawyers, which then realised wasn't what we wanted to do. Why not? I think that by the time that we were becoming lawyers, lawyers had increasingly become sort of specialist paper factories, very technical. I think there'd been a sort of period in the 50s and 60s when quite often lawyers were the kind of homme de fer, the advisors. And I think as the accountants grew and the merchant bankers and the management consultants, they took that advisory role away, leaving the kind of specialist role. Mm. But I think fundamentally, we thought the clients had all the fun. They took the risk. They sometimes lost money, but it was their idea whether to build a building or open a factory or open a chain of restaurants or publish something. And I think we felt we wanted to live or die by our own judgment of whether something was a good idea and we could manufacture something of quality. And in our first three years, insanely, we actually did some film and television as well as some property development. The two are surprisingly sort of naturally related because both involve a spark of an idea and a property, whether the property is acquiring the rights to a novel to turn it into a film or both it's a piece of land. And in one you get in a film director and the other you get in the architect. So the role of producer or developer are similar. And we made two of Channel 4's first dramas. 
Which um, ones? We made one called Arms and the Man, Bernard Shaw, and one called Dibbuk. And at the end of those two, we realised that the English market for independent production was very, very small. It, it was just Channel 4. That's a shame. Um, 35 years later, you'd have had a great market with Netflix. And, yeah, absolutely. And everybody else. But I think we also thought architects were probably more reasonable to deal with than film directors. So the rest was oh, history. I don't know. I don't know. I mean, that's, uh, <laughs> uh, we, 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 we were in the property business. And the first There property, goes my column in BD. <laughs> the, the first property was only 4,000 square feet in Southampton. And they sort of grew. I think we always wanted the next to be better in some way than the others. And the real break came in 93 when we bought Brindy Place in Birmingham. And suddenly we were building three public squares on a kind of canal path. We were doing mixed use. And we've never really looked back. And in one way, it's hindered Argent because nobody at Argent's wanted to do a single building anywhere, really, since we bought Brindy Place. On the other hand, it's what took us to King's Cross and Brent Cross Town. Mm. And what was your relationship with your brother growing up? He was my elder brother. He's still my elder brother. I'm 67. He is 71. And I think actually probably until he more or less retired sort of 20 years ago, I always felt he was the elder brother. I don't think I'm the elder brother now, but the gap has closed. He is incredibly sensible, practical and organised. I was always ready to buy anything that moved and he was always ready to look at the reasons we shouldn't. And between the two, if we decided jointly to buy, it was normally a good idea. Hmm. And in terms of your wider family, you've got quite a good number of kids and grandkids. And I hear from sources in the market, Peter, that you're getting the grandkids into construction for a treehouse or two. So I have five children and the eldest one has four children with whom I'm currently co-designing and co-building a treehouse in Buckinghamshire. And what public amenities is it going to have? That's the big question. A fine view over the children's. <laughs> uh, until the walls go up. At the moment, there's really only a platform and railings to stop them falling out. So a very fine view. Presumably, there's not going to be big enough to incur too much for a 106 <laughs> <laughs> contribution. Let's come on to King's Cross. I mean, I don't want to spend too much time on this because you talk about it a lot of everyone and I'm keen that we keep in the present. But as a consumer of North London like anybody else in the way that I live there, I go to the cinema, I hang out and I wander around and I eat pizza and I'll do all the rest. And I've also used studios and hung out around there for many years. So it's a part of London I've got a lot of affinity with. Are there any things that you wish you could have done at King's Cross that you weren't able to for any reason? Very few. Probably the only two things that haven't really gone according to the business plan is we envisaged many more office occupiers and in the event, Google have taken a huge amount, Facebook have taken a huge amount. So the diversity of Occupier came down, which hasn't harmed the business case, but in terms of maybe a look and feel, a bigger variety of tenants would have been good. And the other aspect is I originally assumed that as you went north from the station, the demand from the frontline occupiers would decline, rents would be lower, and we were better to do more third sector lettings. And that's not really happened because they've been priced out. There's a small area that is getting built at the moment where we will do that and are committed contractually to doing that. One of the interesting lessons as to why actually rents didn't decline 
is the journey time through it isn't shorter than we expected, but it's better than we expected because the landscape and public realm and the number of places you can stop and sit on a bench next to a fountain or nip in for a coffee or a drink mean that the time taken to get from the station to the north of the site just passes in a moment. Mm. It's interesting now, looking at some of the larger regen schemes that are coming up, how people are now trying to factor in a bit more. They're factoring in not just the ground level activation and street animation, but also other things that improve that journey, be that scooters, bikes, other things. And I think that the concept of how you treat and price journey time is changing. I'd be interested to see if you'll answer this question. I'm not a huge fan of what they've done at Battersea Power Station. Would you have liked to see something that was a bit more sensitive, that was a bit more low-rise, was a bit more like what you did at King's Cross? It's difficult. It's partly driven by the price of the land. And I can't remember, but I think they paid about $350 million for the land. And it had been a very long planning wait. I think they have left the view of the power station, the powerful view across the river open, which is great. But from the road to the power station is perhaps a bit dense and a bit crowded. But now it actually has become animated. I went there for a wander around a Saturday lunchtime a few weeks ago. Mm. And there's lots of street food. There's lots of proper restaurants. And some of the buildings, including the Frank Geary, are actually very, very amazing buildings. Mm. Mm. And on Brent Cross Town, we had Nick Searle and Robert Evans on propcast maybe about 18 months ago talking a lot about brent cross town and that's starting now to emerge i guess i'm interested in in the macro trend here about the future of work and i'm sure you've got some views on this and i'm sure people ask you this at dinner parties all the time but where is this going to land are we going to end up with a nike swish curve where working from home plummets a little bit over the next few months as more tech companies shed jobs and is it then going to rebound massively and spike causing more pain in the office market along the lines of what we're seeing in north america what's your view as a seasoned pro in this space someone that's seen many cycles my first bet when covid struck and it was compulsory work from home is that the end shakeout would be there would be roughly 20% less office space and that the remaining office space would need to be broadly upgraded. So in order to get people into work, keep them into work, you need good space, good meeting rooms, good breakout rooms, and you need them either to be in a location that is fantastically convenient for public transport or in a location that offers amenity and lunchtime life and evening life in itself. But I mean, I'm absolutely not predicting the death of the office. I think more and more companies in every sphere are kind of saying, we need you back three, four days a week. And Homes England is an example. 82% of Homes England staff are outside London. They're in Manchester, Birmingham, Coventry, Newcastle, Bristol. So that we have to work virtually a lot because our own colleagues are actually 100 or 200 miles away. And then somebody who works for Homes England is based in the Bristol office, but he's got to go down to Exeter for the day to deal with land in Exeter. So I think a lot of companies will find that people are drifting in and out. I think very few people will have their own permanent desk. Almost nobody has their own office anymore, but the office will still be a meeting place. Mm. Well, let's come on to Homes England. And I think there's probably a lack of understanding in some quarters about the scale of the organisation, the breadth of it and what you do. And some people perhaps think it's just some silo in the middle of Whitehall with a load of people in it. I don't know, dishing out land. But 
talk us through the elevator pitch for Homes England because it evolved out of the Homes and Communities Agency back in when did it change names was it under Teresa or was it before no it was before that wasn't it, it would have been under I think about five years ago uh, probably a bit more now no it's a bit more than that but it was under Sabol yeah. God rest his soul but in terms of the agency's raison d'etre what's the principal purpose of Homes England so pretend you're talking to an alien so, who just landed so, and- so I think the first thing to say is any government is going to have to have some involvement in housing because although housing is not like the national health and the education system where 85% of healthcare or education comes from the state, ultimately it is so critically important to have good homes and enough homes, the state has to take responsibility for it. And since the state has kind of nationalised the right to grant planning permission, if you are to have more homes, that is a state-driven decision. Churchill, in his 1951 manifesto, described housing as the first of the social services. Nye Bevan said that if you didn't have the right housing, and he was both Minister of Health and Housing at the same time, if you didn't have the right housing, it would take the health service down. So it's critical government does take responsibility for it. Going back into Homes England in history, and what I've said about a government must always have a Homes England, is actually we are a kind of follow-on from the Newtowns Commission and we're a follow-on from English Partnership. So in our company secretariat department, they have a sort of family tree of all the companies in the organisation, some of which go back to 47. And in the period when we became Homes England, not the Homes and Community Agency, which was only a change of trading name, Mm. the focus of the government was very much on just 300,000 homes a year. I think with the change in the name of the department, the levelling up department, Homes England is once again very much in regeneration and our staff are very excited to be. And our new strategic plan, which came out in May, is very much about regeneration as well as housing. What does that mean? Because the term regeneration has just been taken by people and much like phrases such as sustainability and placemaking, to the point where some would say it's largely redundant. What does it mean? What does it mean for you? So I think it probably captures two things. In a site-specific sense, I think it implies brownfield land, land that has become underused, derelict, dangerous, damaged. In a wider sense than the site itself, it is the development contributing to the regeneration of the town, the place, the location, the community. And some regeneration is in really catalytic. Brindley Place in Birmingham, which Argent started in 93, it could only come about, and I keep saying this, because government acquired the land. They acquired the land for the convention centre, the National Indoor Arena, Brindley Place. And they did that knowingly that Birmingham was absolutely on its uppers. It had lost its industry. It had to reinvent itself. It had to get a town centre life. Mm. Anybody with any money lived in the suburbs, drove in. And so the city set about acquiring 50 acres for regeneration. And that included a Hyatt Hotel, Symphony Hall, and what we did at Brindley Place. I love Place. the Symphony Hall. It's such a, the Symphony Hall is one of my favourite venues. It is a great place, designed for Simon Rattle. So I think you've got regeneration as in turning around a single sort of brownfield derelict site and regeneration as in rebuilding the confidence of a town. And has it become more people-focused? Does it still need to become more people-focused? Because... Some would say, what's regeneration ever done for my life? I and mean, it's funny enough, one of the characters I saw at the Symphony was Morrissey, and it's sort of almost a Morrissey-esque quote, what's it done for my life, regeneration? And I think there'll be many voters, Peter Freeman, that sit there thinking, well, hang on, how's regeneration helped me? 
of them pushing up house prices so that my kids can't afford to move out. Sounds like gentrification. That's the question then. So when is regeneration gentrification? When is it not? And is okay. gentrification in itself a bad so, thing? So, We're so, assuming so, it's a bad so, thing. Interestingly, going back to what I was saying about scale, gentrification by and large is a kind of movement building by building of individual owners selling for a higher price to somebody who can afford to be there more. And, you know, regeneration happened from Notting Hill Gate in the Notting Hill Gate sort of ruts 50 yes. years ago, all the way up, you know, a street every year. I think regeneration is about intervention, is about set pieces that act as catalysts and then may enable other people to do something more peaceful. So after we'd done Brindley Place, Broad Street, Birmingham, which had been awful, building by building, the owners kind of improved it and within five or ten years, Broad Street was all bustling. Mm, mm. I mean, talking about regeneration, gentrification and all of the above, obviously now one of the prevailing narratives in the housing market isn't just the housing crisis that we've been hearing about for donkey's years but a genuine rental crisis where a culmination of different moves measures some of them intentional policy changes some of them less so some of them not so much linked to policy have culminated in a genuine crisis where there's a lack of stock a lack of supply rents have been rocketing up way above wage inflation and that is just causing a real set of problems afflicting not just younger people but also older people as well older people that rent that might not have a home that they own like a lot of people how is homes england placed to support that and what do you need mr gove or whoever's in government over the next few years to do we're involved in approaching it at every level last week we had a border way day in blackpool and you probably know about the sort of houses of multiple occupation and the kind of landlords who are making out like bandits through housing benefit. And we looked at some really shocking housing there that had just been sort of closed down by the council, which had had families living in it until just before. So there's the decency agenda, which Michael Gove is very much leading to get quality up, but we clearly need to get quantity up. And that was the underlying brief to Homes England to get more land consented and infrastructured. And we're still working on How can you do that? Because you don't dish out planning consents. We don't dish out planning consents, but very often the stopper to a planning consent is a town needs a bypass or a ring road, a new bridge, a new school or whatever. So through something called the Housing Infrastructure Fund. And that's one of the pots of cash that you control that you essentially allocate to help unstick sticky problems. So that's a good point you've raised. Homes England, if you open our accounts, looks like it has a balance sheet of about £20 billion, which sounds a lot of money, but most of the balance sheet is the help to buy loans we've made, and they go straight back to the Treasury. So nearly all of our money comes in allocated funds. A particular Chancellor, Prime Minister, Secretary of State will say, here's some money for brownfield remediation, or here's some money for housing associations. And we administer those in their own right according to the government mandate. Mm. But what we're trying to do, and Peter Denton's favourite expression is... This is the chief executive of Homes England. He says one and one makes three. So if we can bring sort of a housing association we're funding together with something from the Housing Infrastructure Fund and we can add capacity and capability to the local authority and bring them all together, that's the one and one makes three. Mm. So in Sheffield, where we've been working closely for a couple of years, we've increased the number 
of new houses being built by housing associations from 100 a year to 800 a year. Yeah, and that's a great number. But I suppose the challenge now, I mean, let's double down on housing associations. Obviously, Peter Denton, your chief exec at the agency, used to be at Hyde, which is one of the country's biggest registered providers. And we had the boss of Hyde, Andy Hume, a lovely chap. He was on PropCast last summer, actually. It's been a while ago. Worth digging that out if you'd like to have a listen. But the question, Peter Freeman, really, is in the current landscape where housing associations have got to pay for safety measures, they've got to fix damp and mould, they've got to deal with all of the other post-Grenfell changes, and they've got to deal with just the broader cost-of-living crisis and inflationary measures. How are they going to do any kind of real development when they've got all these other capital costs staring them in the face? I mean, some of them can't be solvent, can they? I don't think any housing association has ever actually... Failed. I think partly they look after their own and they... Well, they get abs- bailed out, don't they? Like well, well, they get taken over by a bigger one because I think they do regard themselves as a sector that has to have a strong borrowing capacity and it's absolutely regarded as somehow or other we will save anything that gets into trouble. So that's the first comment. The second comment is the affordable housing programme set out to produce a certain number of houses for, I think it was £7.6 billion between 21 and 26. And as soon as the financial crisis started and interest rates started going up and construction costs were going through the roof, we sat down with the Treasury and DLUC and we managed to agree a recasting of it. So although a slightly lower number of homes will be produced instead of slightly under 100,000 under that programme. We've been able to recast it to make it slightly more flexible and we are confident that the housing associations will be able to produce that number. Mm. And what about private providers? I mean, Denton was quite key at Hyde at bringing in a private partner, M&G Real Estate, which came in as a partner of Hyde Housing with a separate structure. But there are parts of the market, parts of the political sphere that would see that as the most evil thing to have ever occurred. Private capital dancing with people in the housing association in in the public sector. What's your view on that? We've got a relationship with M&G, with AXA. Legal in general, Blackstone and others are... I don't think we've got a relationship with Blackstone, but I think... You don't, but they are an investor in... I think we feel that there are perfectly respectable blue chip people who are managing masses of pension fund money for whom this is a good matched liability because there's going to be people paying rent in affordable homes Mm. forever and we don't see any problem in supplementing the kind of more public housing association local authority housing with additional money if it comes from somebody who is truly a responsible landlord. Mm. Do you think the regulatory system needs to be modernised to allow more private investment? Would that potentially speed up delivery of affordable houses? I think I probably haven't got the expertise to comment. Yeah, that's fair enough. And within that sphere, what about the role of intermediate housing, of shared ownership particularly? Because you mentioned briefly the helped buy regime, which has obviously been tapered off, but it would strike me that right now, particularly with rates going the way they are, the way they have been, and the cost of living crisis and the lack of any real quantum of key worker housing being built, that if you want to get people on lower incomes onto the ownership ladder, the only game in town is shared ownership. Yeah, and what one might aspire to is to building more social rented again in order 
that you can keep the flywheel spinning and allow the right to buy without diminishing the overall stock of social housing. Or just build more social rented housing and not have rights buy because it's a daft policy. But that's me saying that, not you. Um, it's certainly you saying it, not me. It's a policy that I believe was first introduced by post-war Labour government. And I think it's a policy that continued under Thatcher but wasn't invented under her. I think it's a policy that actually has given an awful lot of people their first sort of start in life. Yeah. Well, I mean, I'd say that maybe investing in education right now could be a better use of that money, but I think there's a whole separate podcast on that one. What I'd like to talk about, really, I suppose, is some of the cities where you are making an impact as an agency, Peter Freeman. So you mentioned Sheffield very briefly. York is another city where you've had a big presence with the York Central project for some years and that's a joint venture between homes england and network rail the land all around the station and you've got a master plan that got consented some years ago and you're currently in talks to get a developer on an investor onto that scheme and i guess the question i'm going to throw you i'm not sure if you'll answer it or not but uh, (laughs) it's a similar question to cambridge and the question is this do we need to get real on density rather than simply coming in and taking this very conservative stance on density should we be accepting that where we've got transport hubs be they york be they cambridge whatever they are that we should be making use of scarce centrally located land and actually going for it a bit more because the master plan you've got at york century is quite low and some would say not going to be that viable as a result right and the master plan at York Central, designed by Allies and Morrison, who did the Olympics and King's Cross and lots of other great schemes, has effectively two main areas. There's a smaller, much denser area right by the station, which is naturally where you would expect it to be. And that's an area fundamentally for employment use. So people can come straight out of the station and walk within a couple hundred metres to office buildings, which are sort of six, seven storeys tall. The rest of the scheme is a sort of lower three, four storey density. But I think, you know, when you're in A, an ancient cathedral city, and B, those buildings are not so immediately close to the station, I think that's an appropriate density. It's a much higher density than in a kind of suburban greenfield site. It also includes, I think it's a 15, 20-acre new public park. I think it's a pretty good master plan. I mean, and more broadly, because I think this plays into some of the frustrations in the wider property market around the planning system, that the places where we should be pushing the envelope on density and on being more aggressive, often we don't end up there because of opposition. Yeah. Is that something you accept or not? I think it's partly opposition. It's partly that the development industry has not done itself favours by showing that it would like to bring benefit to a community when it's developing. It's partly that the sites are too small and sort of done piecemeal to bring together the sort of public open space amenity. And I think that there's also the issue of capacity and capability at local authorities. And in Secretary of State's speech last week, he announced more money for planning and for what was called an Atlas II, which would be sort of centres of excellence to help master plan and drive planning. I think we can do better in the next 20 years than we've done in the last 20 years. I think there are a number of examples of very good, starting with the King's Poundbury. And 
I think the office of place, the work of Nicholas Boyce Smith, genuinely has merit. And if we can build better things, bring more amenity with them, take the community with us, it will be easier to get planning. There will be more housing. There will be less of an affordable crisis. All good points. Does there need to be a higher level of regulation around sustainability? Because you know, we're still consenting homes that aren't of a particularly great standard. We've had lots of debates on net zero, on you know all the code for sustainable homes rules that were chucked out. But we still don't really have much connection between planning and net zero. And comments in the press seem to be looking at dates again. I think that we can design better from the beginning. At Homes England, we've set up a cross-cutting committee under Sadie Morgan, who's one of our non-executive directors, Sterling Prize-winning architect and chair of the design panel of the National Infrastructure Commission. What I would like to come out of the work she's doing is a helping to breed in the DNA of everybody at Homes England that we care about sustainability, but B, bringing together all of the different good works that have been done by different committees to say, these are the standards that where we can mandate them, which we can to an extent when we're selling land to somebody or when we're lending them money to be a developer or we're giving them a grant. These are things we're prepared to mandate because we think they are so critical and broadly affordable that we mandate them. And these are things that we would like to encourage and recommend. We have about 5,000 counterparties at Homes England, you know, all the local authorities, house builders, architects, whatever. We would like to encourage all of them to do better next year, every year. So rather than sort of setting impossible hurdles that aren't going to be met, we'd like to set realistic mandated targets and encourage to go beyond each year. But does it frustrate you that a lot of these things just get reduced to cost and that the conversation is simply and i hear this all the time oh we can't possibly do that we can't possibly do this because it would push the cost up and we seem constantly maybe this is a generational thing but we seem constantly to be talking about the cost of this tomorrow and no one's thinking well what's going to be the cost of the economy if new york's underwater in 75 years <laughs> many how many dozen times more than doing all the things we could be doing now. And I appreciate that as Chair of Homes England, there's a limited scope within your role in your daily schedule to solve climate change, Peter Freeman. But I suppose my question is, how do we fix some of this short-termism? And I'm not just talking about UK policy, I'm talking in a broader sense, because a lot of this does get perpetuated through the media, doesn't it? I think changing short-termism is partly cultural and partly technical and partly financial to an extent if you set the right technical standards the land prices will adjust to meet them if it does cost more so explain what you mean by that well let's say for argument's sake that it cost 150 pounds a foot to build a house and it was a thousand foot house so the construction cost was going to be 150,000. yeah in much of the country at the moment the plot for that house would be between fifty and £100,000 for the plot. If the construction cost went up by 10000 to meet standards, in effect, the land price could swallow that. Mm. But the land price isn't going to swallow it unless it's mandated to do those things because the landowner will exercise their rights to sell to the highest bidder. Well, they're the right, highest... yeah, they're right to sit there for another few years and wait till someone comes along with a better offer, which is typically what they do. Am I being a cynic? 
I actually think that, and I think the Letwin report probably bore this out, that the notion that people just sit on land probably isn't right. You know, there are natural absorption rates. And it's sort of unfair. If somebody buys a plot that can take 500 units, but the realistic build-out is 70 or 80 a year, they shouldn't be criticised that it takes six years because they wouldn't be criticised if they bought six separate plots each year for 70 units. No, no, I agree with that. And a lot of these numbers are banded around in a disingenuous fashion for exactly that purpose. I, I accept that. But I suppose where I would challenge your assertion that if things were set out in statute that they would be absorbed by land prices, that land prices, particularly in London, have continued to soar over the last 10 years despite mounting regulation, latest of which is obviously safety measures introduced by the Mayor of London around separate staircases on buildings of certain heights. What I would be keen to understand, Peter Freeman, I suppose, is where, in your experience over the years, and going back to some of what we were talking about, your challenge to property industry of, of making the case a bit more strongly, a bit better... What are some of the levers that you think everyone could be engaging around turning NIMBYs into YIMBYs? I don't think you'll particularly turn NIMBYs into YIMBYs, partly because they're a different generation. I think more could be done to activate YIMBYs to be politically active. My understanding is, particularly in California, YIMBYs have very successfully managed to get candidates elected. I'll tell you a story going back into ancient history. When Argent was about six or seven years old, we stumbled across a site that was about 180 acres of greenbelt between the River Thames and built up Weybridge and Walton. And I had the notion then that if the southwest corner, which was completely invisible from the Walton Hill ran above the rest of the site, was turned into housing, the other 160 acres could become public open space, could be a kind of Kensington Gardens. It had a more or less dried up lake about the size of the Serpentine. We could dredge that, pond dipping, nature, whatever. And we got to the point where at a public meeting, the leader of the council stood up and said, well, what's not to like about this? And I thought, wow. And the moment he sat down, another councillor stood up and said, this is the front line of the Greenbelt. You're not standing for re-election. I am. And it died the death. But if local people had seen large amounts of land come into public ownership as public park, whether it was for allotments, whether it was for pond dipping, whether it was for playgrounds or playing fields or all of those things, I think people would be a lot more supportive of the notion that some green belt should be released because at the moment the assumption is that it's a creeping sort of threat if it's released the next piece will be released and the next piece if you knew that when it was released 10 times as much went into the ownership of a community trust i think you'd turn the equation around mm. and what role then given the expanded mandate that homes england has to focus on regeneration not just on housing where does all this sit within the day-to-day -day brief then? So clearly policy comes from ministers and the department. And Absolutely. We, we are a kind of delivery execution agency. I was asked to kind of do a review of Homes England when I arrived there three years ago. And one of the things I said is, yeah, fine, policy starts with central government, ministers, manifestos. But if 
policy has to be turned into delivery, it's probably helpful for the people who have to deliver it to be sort of in the loop earlier on so that the policy is being designed in a way that probably can be delivered. So we set up between DLUC and Homes England what's called a policy delivery partnership. If you think of it as sort of two triangular wedges and at one end it's the initial end, the thick bit is policy with the department and as time goes by the policy bit is narrowing and the delivery bit is widening but the two are overlapping all the way. So we would hope that any policy we are given in the future is something that we've fed in the expertise of delivery to the creation. Mm. So what are the next few years going to bring us then? And I'm interested both in terms of your predictions on, on well, predictions on everything, the, the economy, the property cycle, and what you're going to be focusing on in both of your roles, both of your main roles anyway. You've got a few other roles, but in terms of the Homes England role and the Cambridge role. I'm an optimist, but I'm also a historian and, and a veteran of 42 years in the property yeah, market. A PhD so in history the, from Cambridge, so not just so, any historian. So, so, so the property market is cyclical. We are in a downturn. We don't yet know how severe the downturn is. We hope it won't be that severe. In all previous downturns, you've probably totally recovered to business as normal within three or four years, and we're already effectively a year in. I think my overall optimism comes from the fact I really believe in Britain and England, and whether it's that we're good at inventing things or we're good at sport or we're good at making James Bond films or famous musicians, it is a good and safe place to live. It's a creative and inclusive culture. I don't think there's any other town in the world where you would see so many people from so many different countries on the tube train. The tragedy at King's Cross in 2005, I think the 50-odd people killed on that day, 27 were born in countries other than England. So I think we have all the basics for success and we will get there. Well, that's a great way to leave it. So Peter Freeman, thank you very much for coming in. It's been brilliant to chat to you and great to have your insight on so many different areas of everything. Of course, if you are listening to this and you'd like to know more about homes england obviously go to their website and peter has boots on the ground in pretty much every major city major town in england and will be happy i'm sure to come and see you personally and talk about <laughs> almost a promise <laughs> yeah almost promise almost promise but anyway thank you very much again to peter freeman you've been listening to andrew teacher i'm the managing director for real estate in esg at Montford. And this has been put together in association with Property Week. And don't forget to keep checking propertyweek.com for latest events, news, and all sorts of other analysis and insight. You can subscribe to Propcast on Apple, on Spotify, on SoundCloud, on Amazon. Just search Propcast wherever you get your podcasts from and do get in touch with any guest suggestions or anything else you'd like to offer feedback on. Thanks very much for listening. And we'll see you again very, very soon. Thank you.